everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. The topic of today's episode is the great books of Western civilization, and my guest, Scott Hambrick, talks about what these works are, why they are still important and relevant today, and what they have to teach us about achieving the good life. Scott is the founder of an organization called Online Great Books. Scott does not come out of academia. Rather, he learned the great books by reading them himself as part of a small reading group. He found the experience to be so life-changing that he started an organization to help others do the same thing. Scott has a fun and disarming way of talking about these books and explaining them in plain English that I find refreshing. So if you're under stay-at-home orders, like I am, and you find yourself with more time to read, I think you'll enjoy this introduction to the great books, and you may even be inspired to pick one up and start reading today. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Scott as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Scott Hambrick. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Scott, welcome to The Good Life. Thanks, man. Thank you for having me on here. So our topic today is the great books of Western civilization. You know, what are they? Why are they great? Why should we read them? How can they contribute to the good life? And you're not a professor and you don't have the traditional background or credentials from academia. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have you on the show today, because I'm not about to go back to graduate school to get my PhD in philosophy. And yet I really (laughs) believe there's value in reading these great works and learning from them. And you followed a very non-traditional route to kind of this self-education and getting to know the great books. And I think it's one that many of my listeners might be interested in emulating. And we're going to get into your background shortly, but I thought I'd start with just, you know, what are the great books and why should we consider them great? A lot of people like to argue about what the great books might be. I don't think it's arguable though. I think the great books is, it's an emergent list. The example I always give is that if you're like, man, you know, I want to go read this Nietzsche guy. I hear he's nuts and interesting. I'm going to go read that. And you go pick him up, pick up his genealogy of morals or whatever, and start digging into that. He's going to talk about Hegel and he's going to talk about Kant. Well, if you're a conscientious guy, you're like, well, gosh, I guess I need to go read these guys. And they're going to say something about maybe Hume and maybe Aristotle. And gosh, now I got to go read Aristotle. Aristotle talks about Plato and Plato talks about Homer. And anyway, these guys all refer to each other and they're really sort of in a great conversation held among themselves. You know, these books are reactions or scaffolding on top of the books that came before them. You can go pick up one of these good books and kind of sketch out this genealogy for yourself. I think that people don't disagree about what the canon is more than a few titles. I think people kind of 90% agree that what's supposed to be in there. I don't think there's any sane person that says that Aristotle doesn't make the cut or Plato doesn't make the cut. One thing about the great books is they've survived the test of time. And I think there's a lot of value in that. I think it was Nassim Taleb who opened my eyes to kind of the Lindy effect. I think the Lindy effect is something like if something has been around for a hundred years, it's much more likely to be around for another hundred years. And so if Aristotle has been around for 2,300 years or whatnot, 
he's probably going to be around for another 2,300 years. And so if something's lasted that long, and to think that people, the scribes in the Middle Ages had to write this stuff out by hand to copy it, they weren't just going to copy any old garbage. You know, the stuff that had value lasted. When the barbarians come to sack Rome, you get the good stuff. You can only grab something quick and get the heck out. And in some cases, these books would get people killed. People hid them and copied them and saved them so their grandkids, their posterity could have them. How did you get interested in the great books and what was your entry point? I've always been a reader and I had tried to read some of these things. The example I give most is uh, The Republic. I tried to read The Republic when I was 16, 17, something like that. It was not accessible to me at that time. And I went on and got a degree at the University of Oklahoma. I got a kind of science background, microbiology, chemistry kind of guy. And later on, I had some kids. And then when we were talking about homeschooling those kids, I was researching you know, how we might best do that and found out about the trivium, the three classical liberal arts, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. I need that. My education really isn't an education. It's training. I mean, a lot of people would say, oh, it's education. So I think it's very specialized, very specific training in a certain discipline. It's not a liberal education where you learn how to learn. Take organic chemistry, you're not going to learn how to learn. They're going to bottle feed you organic chemistry. I wanted that. So I started researching how one might best do that as an adult and found that I probably didn't want to go learn Latin. I was running a business and had 20 employees and a couple of kids on the ground, stuff to do. And I found this great books approach and thought, that's doable for a busy guy with a wife and, a, and some kids and all that. And uh, started a great books group here in my home. We meet on the third Thursday of the month. I've been doing it now for almost five years. And the guys that are in that group love it. It's one of the most important things they do every month and they never miss it. One of the guys that's in the group is Brett McKay of The Art of Manliness. And Brett's like, yeah, you need to do this. This needs to get out to a whole bunch more people. He kind of elbowed me into go ahead and creating the thing for a broader online community. And we started onlinegreatbooks.com in January of 2018. So running a little over two years, got about 600 people that are reading these books and uh, discussing them in seminars every, every month. Well, the group that you started there in Tulsa was based on a model that was established by Mortimer Adler in the 1950s. And he had a fascinating background. Maybe you can talk about the history of this movement, you know, to read the great books, when it started, why it started, and who was behind it. In the early 1900s, there was a guy named John Erskine at Columbia in their classics department who advocated reading. Well, they were having the age-old problem. They're like, these kids these days, they can't read. And for them at that time, what they meant was the kids can't read Homer in the Greek. What they meant at that time was they can't read Caesar in the Latin. And Erskine said, well, yeah, you're right. What are we going to do? Well, let's go ahead and let them read them in translation. Go ahead and do that. And let's have the credit seminars over those things. And kick that off. And it kind of died because of World War I. And when these GIs started coming home, he started running great books classes for soldiers, essentially adults that were returning from the war. And it was very successful. And one of his students, not one of the GIs, but one of the students was Mortimer Adler. And Adler became enamored with the whole project. He never graduated from Columbia. They were going to make him get some PE, physical education credits, and he refused. So he never graduated. He just left. And Robert Hutchins at the University of Chicago hired Adler, and Adler started what they called the basic program there, which was mostly what Erskine had been doing. And 
Adler was a force of nature. He lived to be a hundred almost. I think he lived to be 99 and uh, he was just tireless. He was on frontline all the time, television shows, and just a public intellectual. He had a, a television show in California in the 50s about the great ideas and just wanted everybody in the United States to do this. And he eventually went to the Encyclopedia Britannica company and got them to publish the 54 volume Great Books of the Western World set because he thought that if you were going to be people who governed that you need to know these things, right? You need to know the ideas and the issues in these books. So he pushed that stuff tirelessly. He wrote a book in the late 40s called How to Read a Book. I've stolen from him liberally. <laughs> well, then that's what he wanted, right? He was like open source before there was open source. He was trying to create these reading groups out there in American society for people to gather and read together, discuss, learn. And it's important that. When you grapple with these books, I think it's important to have some people around you to kind of motivate and inspire in ways, but also to be dialectic, right? To discuss, to expound your own thoughts about what you're reading and to hear someone else's perspective. And through that, you're going to, going to learn. And Adler understood that and was trying to start these groups, which I think was great. Uh, so that was the 40s, 50s, into the 60s. He's starting these groups. I never heard about a group like that growing up. You're sort of revising it. Did it go into, where did it go for, did it just kind of die out and are we getting back to it or what? Well, it certainly lost some popularity. Encyclopedia Britannica continued to produce that set into the 90s. I think it was in its third edition. Of the, and they would sell them door to door. But, and, and there were still great books groups at your local library or meet, maybe meeting in the fellowship hall at the church down the street, but there certainly was by the eighties or probably, I don't know, 5% of the number of groups at that point than there had been in the late fifties. He eventually helped found the Great Books Foundation, which whose mission is ostensibly to get people to do this. But there are colleges all over the country that are still trying to do this. You know, the most famous one really, I think, or the best one is probably St. John's College. It was founded by Stringfellow Barr and I think Scott Buchanan in the late 30s. Actually, it wasn't founded. They got control of that university by peaceful means. And they revised it as a great book school. And the students there, Johnny's, they call them to this day. The whole curriculum is just a great books curriculum. There's that one, St. Thomas Aquinas College in uh, California, Hillsdale College. There are a number of them that still do this. And uh, there's almost a direct family tree back to John Erskine and all of those places. But liberal arts departments are dying all over the country. Universities are actually dying. They don't know it yet, but they're on their way out, at least in their current form. And we're kind of stepping into that gap. I mean, that's not what I intended to do. I just wanted more people to read, but I'm finding out that people are really, really hungry for it. And there's just nowhere else to go. Well, in this show, we talk about living a good life. And how do we do that? How do we live a life that's flourishing? How do we live a life of meaning, of purpose? How do we get the most out of every day? And a lot of that wisdom is when you follow it back, it leads back to these great authors and the great works. If we're interested in living a good life, where would you point people? Or is it you got to read the whole canon? I don't think so. I think that you can read a few of Plato and go a long way there. You know, I think you could read the symposium where Socrates and his friends are laying around drinking and talking about what love is and, and learn quite a bit about it. I think you can learn a little bit about it from the discussions of how to build a just society in the Republic. And then Aristotle, I think, in his ethics and politics, 
I'd like to give our listeners an idea of what it's like to sit in on one of these discussion groups and get a taste for the kind of dialogue and questioning that happens. In Aristotle's great work, Nicomachean Ethics, book one, chapter seven, he has a famous discussion about what it means to live a good life. So maybe you could take us through that. When you say, I want to live a good life, there's a lot packed in there. What is life? What is good? Is that actually the purpose of a human being to live a good life? There's a lot assumed in there when you throw a question like that out. I think it's important to kind of dig in there and and figure out what you think all of those things are. Life, good, living, higher purposes, before you can even start to formulate a plan. And those early guys, particularly Plato and Aristotle, and then then maybe Aquinas, ask all the questions properly. And they give some darn good answers. You may not agree, but they set the, a really great example for answering those questions and how you might approach them. You know, Aristotle, uh, he talks about, you know, what's, if you're going to live a good life, like, what does that mean? Does that mean you just like eat a lot of great food? That you buy a bunch of stuff? That you have all the sex partners you want? Like, what does it really mean? Like, how do you do that? Is it about your sense experience? Is it about ease? What's it about? And he says it's about, we call it happiness, but the Greeks called it eudaimonia. Those Greeks are like, you know, you hear these stories about how like Eskimos have like 500 words for snow because they had such a nuanced understanding of snow. They needed all that language resolution to actually talk about it like they needed to. Those Greeks are like that about love and, and happiness. You know, they get this, all these eros and Agape, they have all these different kinds of love and they have different kinds of happiness that they talk about. We don't really have enough words for it. And they call it about eudaimonia. And that eudaimonic happiness is sort of a, a deep fulfillment. It's not really joyful. It's not laughing because somebody said a good joke. It's, it's, it's just this deep abiding fulfillment that frankly only humans can have. He outlines that and why that might be our highest purpose. And I think his, his main argument for why that would be our highest purpose is because you don't want happiness for any other reason. Like you might want to eat a good meal yeah, so you don't starve, so that you could continue life. Almost anything you do has another reason behind it. Some things we do just because it's good in itself. It's good in and of itself. Yeah, and that's what Aristotle sort of got down to bedrock with that. Right. Some people say it's kind of a tautology. He's saying, oh, it's good because it's good. I get it, but it's bedrock. There are contradictions and things that are not provable when you get to bedrock. Axioms, you just have to take them for granted. We make some good logical arguments for why happiness is the highest good, the best purpose, the highest purpose of human life. But you have to believe that that uh, eudaimonia is the best state for the human. And one of the main proofs, like we just said, is that uh, he says, we all want it. We want happiness for happiness' sake only, not for anything else. And I think these liberal arts point directly to that. There's absolutely no freaking reason to read Hamlet, except that it's just good. If you're going to build a doghouse, reading Hamlet's not going to help you make a better doghouse. It's probably not going to make you a better dad. It's probably not going to help you at work. You probably won't make any more money, but it's good in and of itself. And he says that those things like that, it's when we do those things is when we're at our most excellent We display our excellences as humans. And I buy that. I think I do too. I buy into that. 
I mean, that's a good case for reading the good books right there, that it is not only to learn and to have wisdom, but in itself, it is a good. It is a higher purpose of, it's a eudaimonic experience to read and contemplate. And for that reason alone, it's worth it. It's a distinctly human excellence. Like it's something we can only do. You know, those, those Greeks are big on teleology, like purpose. Like you can take a rock and you can hammer a nail in, you can beat a nail into a board, but hammers are really good at it. And you know, hammerness from rockness because of one of the ways you know that is because of what their final cause is and what their efficient cause is and, and how good they fit the final cause. And hammers are good at hammering. And it's one of the excellences of humans is to delve into these liberal arts. Not only are we fit for it, but there's not even a rock you can pound the nail with. There's no other way to get at Hamlet. There's not a rabbit that can do it or a rock or a star or a breeze or anything else. It's something that only we can do. And Aristotle and even Aquinas say that because we know that it's good, we're the only ones to do it. We're bound to do it. We must do it. And I love that whole calculus. I love that whole way of, of analyzing it and thinking about it. I think Aristotle even makes that example when he talks about what is the chief good. I mean, wealth, you might say, well, wealth has some goodness qualities, but you always accumulate wealth for the purpose of something else, for shelter, for food, for happiness, possibly. And therefore, it's not going to be the chief good. You can't bank everything on wealth. He says there are preconditions for happiness. You got to have enough wealth. You have to have enough esteem in the community. You can't walk around shamed all the time. You have to have this esteem in the community. And he says, you know, if you don't have friends, if you don't have enough money or enough wealth to free up time and to meet your material needs, happiness is going to evade you. But he doesn't want any of those things in excess either. He's all about his Aristotelian mean. You just need enough. But he says there's preconditions. So you got to watch out for those things. So let's continue our discussion of Book 1, Chapter 7 of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Am I pronouncing that correctly? He had a son, Nicomachus, and he wrote this for his boy. Some people say Nicomachean. Nicomachean Ethics, if you've not read any Aristotle, can be a heavy lift. But Book book 1, I recommend it. Look, it ain't a book. It's a chapter. But they call it Book 1, and then there's some subsections in there. And I highly recommend this Book 1. Aristotle's so good. He takes the thoughts of these philosophers that came before him and restates them. Daniel Dennett calls it steel manning. There's a straw man, you know, that's a fallacy that we don't care for. But he says, you know, when you're in a debate with somebody, you want to be able to steel man their argument. You want to be able to state their case so well that your opponent says, I wish I'd said it that way. Yeah, you're right. About the first half of book one, Aristotle does that for the people that came before him, particularly Plato. And then at the last half of that book one, he starts to make his own case for what he thinks needs to go down. And he thinks that that happiness is the highest purpose of man. And I agree. Again, the word happiness just ain't enough, you know, in English. Then he starts describing things that you might possibly do that might help bring you those things. So you got to be virtuous. All your actions need to lead to happiness and not away from happiness. You need to cultivate relationships those relationships are going to be based on appreciation of the other's virtues. And then he talks about how you figure out what ethical behavior is, where he describes his Aristotelian mean. He says it's right in the middle. 
He's very geometrical. He says, if he says there's a machine gun nest, you just jump up and rush it. You'd be very, very brave, but you'd probably be mowed down and killed instantly. But if you saw a machine gun nest and you just crawled to the rear, that's cowardly. I mean, that's not good. But right in the middle, but there's a bravery that's tempered by caution and fear so that you don't rush into the hail of bullets, but you're able to get the job done and act in order to save your friends. And that mean, that spot in the middle, that's where you want to be. And he says, you can calculate where it needs to be. And then he says that you get there and you get there by practice. The brave guy, he's always scared, but he always does brave things. And by and by, everybody knows that he's brave. The important thing about the great books is they force you to think about these things. They encourage you to ask those questions. And you made a great point earlier. They have some pretty good answers. You don't have to necessarily buy into them, but you're going to see and learn from Aquinas and Aristotle and Plato who are throwing out some pretty good arguments about how to think about and how to approach some of these really big questions. I don't think we ask the questions enough in our society. Your mom squeezes you out four or five years later, they put you in school that the government runs and they put you in that thing. I call it, it's minimum security incarceration. They put you on release. You can go home at night, but you have to come back. And you do that for 12, 13 years. And then they put you in school. And the whole time, it's get a job, fight to keep it, do what you're supposed to do, write your name in the top right-hand corner, stand up when they ring the bell, sit back down, they ring the other bell, get in line, do whatever, and then get a job, fight to keep it, get a 30-year mortgage pay it 20 bucks extra every month, pay it off three years early. In 67, you can get your social security and stuff. And you got to have deep ditches and good guardrails around young people. Maybe that's a good thing to do. But there's a point where you have to say, wait, is this really my purpose in life? Is it really? Is it really to just amortize mortgages out? Is it really to go to work and ink the lever and crank the handle, make the money come out? But we have to do it. I mean, Aristotle agrees we have to do it too. We got to have some of this. We got to have enough wealth to buy corn. But at some point that we owe it to ourselves to figure it out. I worked very, very hard, started a couple of businesses and I've done, I've done pretty good. I'm 45 now, but when I was a younger guy working 65, 70, 80, 85 hours a week, the older guys are like, look, man, you're not gonna be in your deathbed wishing you had worked more. It's not all about this. These older men that cared about me, uncles and mentors would say that. I don't know anybody that wishes they worked more and loves it. Like most of the guys I know want to wish they could get out. We need to just quit telling all these young people that that's the only thing in life. We need to tell them what we need to do. Tell them that the only thing that really matters is these relationships. Work on those. Work on those. Work on those. Have a career so you don't starve to death and you can have relationships, but work on those. But we're just not doing that. The whole calculus is jacked up and almost nobody's talking about how it might be different or how it might be wrong or what maybe we ought to tell young people. Yeah, I agree with you. The whole idea of valuing relationships, we just don't value relationships enough. Daniel Gilbert, he's a Harvard professor and he wrote a book on happiness and he has one of my all-time favorite quotes about happiness. He says, we are happy when we have family, we are happy when we have friends, and almost all the other things we think make us happy are actually just ways of getting more family and friends. And I think Aristotle would agree relationships are important. Yeah, of course it is. But you know, other things that we care about or are taught to care about more, just so much easier to measure. Oh, I got a raise, whatever. This is so much easier to measure and you get that instant dopamine. At this point, I guess most things have been reduced to some sort of economic calculus. Can't afford to have kids. Okay, listen, what you're implying there 
is that kids have a cash value. So let's go ahead and get the yellow pad out and the sharp pencil and let's just put a dollar figure on it. Let's figure out how much one of them's worth and let's go down the kids' store. Like it's not even an economic calculus whether or not to have children. I know you need to be able to have enough food. There's some stuff going on there. I get it. But it's not strictly that. I mean, I know so many people and they both work and there's money and they've got vacations and they do the things they want to do and they're making children an economic decision. But I would say that there is a kind of relationship We're back to relationships. And he says that friendship and relationships are important. There's a kind of relationship can only be had with children. There's a relationship that can only be had with spouses, parents, siblings. They're their own thing. And there's a kind of relationship you can only have with your own child. And if you don't have one, you can't have it. There's a piece of that human experience, if you don't have a kid, that will forever be lost to you. And you will have not lived at least that chunk of that human experience. So what's that worth? Calculate the present value of a child and let me know. (laughs) You can't do it. I know you got to have some money, guys. I get it. But it's not strictly that. There are people that have late model cars and go on vacations twice a year that say they can't afford a kid. And it's like, they don't eat much, you know? Yeah. And you don't get that time back. No. That's the thing about the great books. Like I said, going to force you to grapple with some of these big questions. I have to say I'm intimidated by a lot of these books. I studied math in college. I hung out at the philosophy department a little bit because I had an interest in that, but I didn't think it was very practical. So went off and studied math and got into technology and got married, had kids, growing a family, very busy. Well, I bet that cost you. We did it without even thinking about it, which was great. I'm glad we didn't overthink it. It was a wonderful decision and brought me much happiness. Think about happiness, you think about family and friends. But at some point, I, I think I was reintroduced to Homer, where it started, was the Odyssey. And then I went back and read the Iliad. And it just sort of got me on a little journey. First of all, I was surprised at how accessible they were. I built it up in my mind that I can't just go back and read this without taking a course and having some professor explaining it to me. But I picked it up. I read it. It had some notes and I read the introduction. And actually, the introduction was the most confusing part of the whole book. And it got me going. But still, when I pick up even Aristotle or Plato, they are intimidating. So how do we get over that? And how do your organization, Online Great Books, help us to do that? Well, some of these books are intimidating and some of them rightly so. But I think a lot of that's our conditioning. We go to school and in the last 150 years or so, there's become like an expert culture. Everything is so specialized that there are experts in everything. And that's really pretty new. These books used to be for everybody. And of course, there are probably there are haters out there saying, oh, not everybody was literate. I get it. But there wasn't an expert class. Thomas Jefferson, when he's 12, 13, 14 years old, was reading Homer. And he's just a planter's son. The Last of the Mohican was the second best-selling book in the United States for about 50 years behind the Bible. That is not an easy book. There were people that would look at the back end of a mule all day, and then when the workday was over, would read Fenimore Cooper, which is a pretty heavy lift. So school has kind of taught us that we need an intermediary that we need somebody to mediate the experience for us and interpret it for us. And that's a new phenomenon. You don't need it. The books will meet you where you are. I tell people that a kid can read the Iliad. A young 15-year-old can read the Iliad. And it's just a really great action story. 
but an Iraq war vet is going to get something entirely different from that. Or a lady that works as a nurse in the ER or an older person is going to read Priam, lose his son in the field of battle and, and uh, see something about mortality and posterity that the kid wouldn't see. The books meet you where you are. So I would say when you pick them up, know that you were probably taught to read by skimming and scanning. Know that most of the reading you've ever done was probably measured against a deadline. You had a book report due on Friday. You had this thing at work you had to do, whatever. And you're strip mining those things as fast as you can. And that's the way you've been doing it. And that's okay. But this is different. It's okay to go slow. And it's okay to not understand it all. My podcast partner on the Online Great Books podcast, Carl Shute, he says that Aristotle's Metaphysics has more truth per page on it than any other book in history. And you can't read that fast, man. Metaphysics, I've been reading it again. It's about seven pages an hour for me. It's brutal. So be patient with yourself. Be kind to yourself. If you don't get it, it's okay. Aquinas talks about Aristotle. He calls him the philosopher. And then he talks about the teacher, which I think was Avicenna. Avicenna said that he had to read metaphysics 51 times before he understood it. So listen, it's okay. Just go in there and get it. Just go do it. And then by and by, you become the kind of person. You habituate yourself to that virtue and you become the kind of person that does this. I have found, like I said, that people are really being taught to skim and scan and we don't do a good job of close reading. So at Online Great Books, the first book we read is Mortimer J. Adler's book, How to Read a Book. You can get that thing. It's still in print. been in print continuously for 75 years now. Go read that thing. And then we jump into the Iliad. And once we ship a hard copy book of the Iliad to all of our new members, in seven days after they get the book, we do some close reading tutorials. So we get on a little Zoom classroom and typically our man, Mark Swick, who works with us at Online Great Books, shows people, he just demonstrates how he does close reading and he cracks open the Iliad and he reads it to him and he shares his inner monologue as he reads it so they know how he's thinking and how he approaches it, what the pace is like. He shows them the notes he makes and we just model it for him. And we found that how to read a book and modeling the close readings has been an enormous help. Everybody has the mental horsepower to do it, but it's haven't habituated to it. And most of us were excited about something. Maybe you read Julius Caesar in the 10th grade and you wrote a little report over it and you were pretty pleased with it and you're excited about it. You turned it in and that cow gave you a C. How do you give somebody a C about their, their paper about Julius Caesar? There's no just way to do that. Oh, you misspelled this or listen, you snuffed out the kid's enthusiasm for it is what you did. And there's nobody grading this work now, right? In your opinion about it matters and you're reading it for your own purposes. You don't care about what Ms. Smith's going to do and you're not turning in a paper. You get it unconditioned yourself in that way. That's a really good point. And we all experience that somewhere along the way. Not just the grading, but reading under deadline, reading a work that you don't necessarily want to read at that moment. I see my kids grappling with that now. My son is 15 and my daughter's 13. So they are starting to tackle some bigger works and Shakespeare and others. They have to do it quickly. It's not their first choice. Like if I had to pick a a Shakespeare play, it, it wouldn't be The Tempest, which is what they asked my son to read. I'd probably start him off with something else like Romeo and Juliet. But that's where we come up from. And you make a really good point that we're now, hey, this is your life. You get a chance to tackle these great books. You can start where you want. You can read what you're interested in. You can go at your own pace. And your opinion and perspective matters, and no one's going to tell you that's wrong. Yeah. Are your kids reading Shakespeare, or is it a translation? They're reading it in the Shakespeare, but 
they're very much quickly going to the Spark Notes version, which has a pretty good translation. It's funny to think of Shakespeare translated. We never had that. I had to read Shakespeare in the Shakespeare. But I feel like Shakespeare is sort of, we're losing him. We're losing the original language because it's getting less and less accessible. And I can see my kids are gravitating more towards these really fantastic translations that you lose a little bit. The people that are alive today are the last people that'll be able to read him without translation of Shakespeare. I get a lot of just value out of reading Shakespeare. I have Shakespeare. He's one of the books on my bookshelf next to my bed, the complete works. It's kind of hard to read because it's got the really small print, but I like it because I can go to any play I want. It's huge. You said earlier that thing you had the most trouble with was the introduction. And we at Online Great Books and Adler say, do not read secondary materials until you've encountered the book for yourself. The secondary materials, somebody is going to interpret this for you and poison the well. And you're reading it for your own purposes. Go get the secondary source later. Once you've been through the Iliad a couple of months or even twice, uh, maybe then you can go look up what some other wingnut has to say about it. But you're sufficient for the purpose. So we tell our people, don't read the introduction. Don't go to Sparks Notes. Don't go to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Don't do that. Look up matters of fact. When was Socrates born? Where the heck is Troy? That kind of thing. But we're grown people. We don't allow people to mediate our experiences like that. Can you imagine going to a movie, but you're not going to go to the movie until you know, somebody tells you what the movie's about? Yeah, that's a really good point. You don't read the critique, two, three-page essay about the movie before you see the movie. You go to the movie and form your own opinion, and everyone thinks that's normal. To be fair, we'll listen to a review. The movie stinks. Okay. But not tell you what the themes in Scorsese's casino are before you go in and what the pink tie that De Niro wears in the third scene. No, we don't do that. We're sufficient to the task. Why people do that probably is because they don't have any formal training in movies. So they just bop in there with their own intellect and their own, own eyes and take them on. And we can do that with the books as well. These schools have they frankly taken that premise, but you can get it back. I want to go back to another comment you made about having the time to read. You kind of said, well, what, do you, what else are you going to do? Watch the NFL game or whatnot. And I find these phones that we have are so addicting. And at night, it's very easy to just pull up the Wall Street Journal, browse some articles, look at Twitter, whatever it is that you enjoyment you get out of your phone. And it's very fleeting. It's like eating junk food. And, but if I take the time, if I put it down and I pick up an Aristotle or a Plato or one of these great books, it's nutrients for my body and for my brain. It's hard to do though. You have to habituate, but I think we all do have the time. I think time is one of the excuses that comes up again and again. And I think we've got to address that one straight up and really ask yourself, well, what are you going to do with the time you have? We have to think about what we're doing with ourselves. We don't need to not get in a script or routine where we have a moment, take our phone out, and we open the phone up. Do you remember? I'm sure you do. We used to go to the bathroom, and we would read the shampoo bottle. Why do you not have a book there? Why do you look at your stupid phone? I just recently bought a Light Phone 2, L-I-G-H-T Phone 2. It's a little bitty phone. It's about the size of a stack of like eight credit cards. And it has an e-ink screen like your Amazon Kindle does. I can text and I can make phone calls and that's it. It's fantastic. And I've been an iPhone guy. I got the first one. I got the first iPhone. 
and I've had them ever since, but no more. Number one, I can't give those guys a thousand bucks every two or three years again. I'm not going to do it. But then the thing is carefully, the phone is carefully engineered to take my time. The way the apps refresh, the colors, everything is carefully tested to maximize your time on the device, your time in the app. And they've got enormous budgets that dedicated to taking my time from me. I'm basically a product that they're providing to their app developers and the people that use the platform. And, and I've had it. I freaking had it. I saw about the light phone too. It's a fraction of the cost. The form factor is lovely. It's just fantastic. And it's freeing up a couple hours a day. They've got that screen time thing on your phone. I've been depressed sometimes looking at that thinking there's no three hours. I'm not getting back from my life. People be like, well, I need it for work. Listen, I'm running an online business and all that. I get it, but I'm way better off to batch all of that stuff I do on my phone in little dribs and drabs throughout the day when I'm sitting at a full-size desktop computer with a keyboard and two monitors. I can answer an email here and answer an email there when screw around with my phone. But if I actually sit down at a computer, I can bang it out in half the time. And I've just got so much more time available as a result. Guys, it's a big deal. Big win. It's just like unloading a bunch of work. How long have you had this phone? I got it right around Christmas time. So it's at the end of February right now. And how much has it impacted your life? Oh, tons. You go to a restaurant and you sit down with your people and uh, there's no phone to grab. I lose the phone because I don't care anymore. These other ones, we make sure we hate it if we don't have pants that we could put the phone in. It influences everything. Now I lose my phone, which is great because I don't really care. Go to a restaurant. I don't look at the phone. It doesn't matter. But they can reach me if they need to and people can text me if they need to. It'll do group text. That was something I really wanted. I want to be able to text my kids and my wife on one thread and it'll do that. It's been fantastic. It reminds me of that story in the Odyssey to bring it back to the great books when Odysseus had his sailors lash him, tie him to the mast when he was going by the sirens because he knew if he heard the sirens, they were going to lure him away, right? He had his crew put wax in all the crew's ears. His ears remain unwaxed so he could hear the sirens, but he knew he had to be constrained. Otherwise, he was going to be lured away. So you've essentially lashed yourself to the mast, Scott. Yeah, I don't have the self-discipline to not use that phone. Who does? People probably think they do, but I listen to a lot of podcasts, which is great. I mean, people are listening to us. Thank you for listening. But I mean, how much time was I walking around with earbuds in when I should have been listening to somebody around me too? I was really worried that I would miss having my podcatcher here. But no, I listen to a lot less podcasts and that's okay. You get to read more. Clearly, I like podcasts. I mean, I'm, here we are. Weekly, I'm on three shows every week that I host. And I don't know how many hours a week of podcast material I was taking in. 10, 12, 15 hours a week, probably. Too much. So it's, it's been a delight. And filled it up with the other things. Play a little more cards than I did. Read a little more than I did. It's been great. And probably just thinking and reflecting. I had Michael Irwin on recently, and he, he wrote a book on solitude. And his definition of solitude is not being by yourself. It's being one with your own thoughts. So you could be, say, all alone on the top of Mount Rainier, but if you're listening to a podcast, he wouldn't consider that solitude. He would say solitude is being alone with your own thoughts, allowing your brain to think through and reflect. And he thinks it's something that we were neglecting, and I believe him, and the phone's part of the problem. So that's a great example of a solution that gets you more time in your day 
to tackle some of these great books because just a few pages a night, you can work through some of this stuff when you have 365 nights out of the year, right? I mean, 10 pages a night is 3,000 pages, 20 pages, we double that, we're over seven. 7,000 pages of the great books is going to get you a few of them, right? That's probably more than most people with a liberal arts bachelor's would read. At Online Great Books, we set these reading goals for our people, and they're all predicated on reading 30 minutes a day, six days a week. And if it's Aristotle's metaphysics, boy, that ain't very much. But there are other things that are lighter, like the Odyssey. People just tend to just tear through that and devour it, and we might read more. But that's it. That's their budget. They find 30 minutes a day, somehow, some way. And I don't think that's a big ask. So just see if you can clear the decks and find 30 minutes somehow, somewhere, and work these things in so that we can maybe pursue this deep-seated contentment. Well, how can people find out more about the online great books? You can listen to the online great books podcast. We put that thing out every Thursday where Carl, my partner Carl Shute, and I actually do something that we think is important. Sometimes it's one of these great books and sometimes it's Dune. And we're going to do Frank Herbert's Dune in two pieces here in a couple of weeks. Just recently did one on the Magna Carta, Articles of Confederation, we do Tom Wolfe, all kinds of interesting things. Go check that out. You can go to onlinegreatbooks.com and see what we've got going on there. And you can join the VIP waiting list. And when we open enrollment again, we'll send you a little coupon code and give you 25% off and get you in the door. We don't have enrollment open every day. We do it about every eight weeks. So every eight weeks, you kind of batch up people who are on the VIP waiting list and you batch them into a new group. Is that right? Because you can be anywhere in the United States or anywhere in the world and join one of these groups. Yeah. The Western Hemisphere is best. Most of our seminars are either 2 p.m. Central Time or 7 p.m. Central Time. So our European friends get into those 2 p.m. ones pretty well. But we call them flights. In April 13th, we're going to open up Flight 12, and we'll sign up several hundred people, and we'll put them in seminar groups of 15 to 20 people each. And that'll be their seminar forever, and they'll read these books and talk about these books with those people and our seminar hosts for as long as they're with us. And we've got people that have been with us since day one. I'm a strength coach, and I use the starting strength method. And I tell my strength people that six weeks later, everybody you know is going to know that you strength train. You're going to look different. You're going to be stronger than you've ever been. And this takes a little longer. It takes four, five, six months. But everybody will know that you've been changed if you've been doing this for four to six months. Well, Scott, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you coming on The Good Life. Thanks for having me on here, man. I love chatting it up with people. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe. Provide a review in Apple or Spotify and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.